Kia ora. What's up everyone? My name's Noah Woolof and I'm the host of the Beyond the Surface podcast, a platform to dive deep into the minds of incredible Kiwis who have a story worth sharing. For today's episode, I sat down with Thomas Maharaj. We had a conversation about how resilience has shaped his life after discovering that he had a vascular brain tumour in his early 20s. He's also been behind some of New Zealand's most innovative Kiwi charities. I really enjoyed sitting down with Tommy and having this chat, and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Welcome to episode number one. Awesome. Hey, Tommy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, kia ora, Noah. Thank you so much for having me, man. Mate, it's an honor to have you on as our first guest. Thanks so much I'm for... to be here. Thanks so much for taking a whim and, oh. uh, and, and <laughs> jumping on, on, you know? Hey, it's pretty cool. Thank you so much, man. I'm excited. Nah, really, it's really appreciate it. to be with you. Uh, so, Tommy, bro, we've known each other for ages, but for people tuning in, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do for your mahi? Yeah, man. Hey, so, um, look, I'm a... At the moment, I'm a um, partnership management and sales coach. I do that with a bit of my time. Um, try to make sure that I work in the most purposeful areas possible, which is great. So I've got some amazing clients and just really trying to help them do you know, sales and partnership management with a bit more empathy and a bit of uh, moral integrity, I think, that really works well, and I really enjoy that. Um, and on the side of that, um, in the process of thinking about what I can do in terms of my legacy and... Um, with the mahi that I do, what difference does it actually make? So that sort of drawn me towards building out a bit of a um, a small um, organisation that helps um, Kiwis get into education, employment, and yeah, just loving it. Really grateful. Beautiful. Absolutely love that. Cheers, man. And for people who don't know you, you know, you've got, on the surface, you look like a totally ordinary bloke. <laughs> Cheers, man. I thought I was extraordinary. Nah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> but... You know, the life that you have lived um, and the experiences that you have gone through, particularly around your, um, you know, your physical health. Um, if, if, if you just want to touch on sort of that journey from when you discovered that you had a vascular brain tumor um, and how that shapes you, if you can just rewind back to then. Yeah, man. Um, that's a few years ago now, um, in my early 20s, of course, as, as you may have just mentioned. Um, you know, a really difficult time for sure. I look back at that and um, it's kind of held me in a good stead for everything I've done since then, of course. But um, yeah, they're just really extremely tough times. If I'm just to be really open about it, it was it was hard. Um, but, you know, perspective's a great thing and you look back at that and you start to count your blessings and um, you start to kind of be grateful for everything else you've been through because um, when you get out the other side it's kind of made you who you are now we're a product of experiences and so yeah I think now just really grateful for that um, at the time bloody hard what was the feeling when you were going into that and if you can if you can bro just touch on touch on that day or or that night you know what happened when you discovered that you had a had a pretty significant brain brain tumor going on yeah so um if i reflect back to then um it's literally like one minute you're living a pretty what i would almost call an ordinary life for somebody in our part of the world i'm partying with my friends i'm um flatting with a great bunch of people um just living a pretty normal student life you would think um and then um while i was just trying to finish off an assignment and um what was hard for me you know i'd already dropped out of uni once so at this point in my life i felt like a bit of a bit of a failure if i'm honest i felt like i was the guy who started things and didn't quite finish 
Um, but when that night happened, I'd started to do, you know, better than what I had done. I'd actually achieved my first ever A, which I thought was bloody awesome. Um, but yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere. I was just studying late at night at university and, um, you know, started to lose feeling to the right side of my body. Simultaneously just had a bunch of different um, sort of sensory type um, feelings in my in my right arm and seeped up my body and I'd just have, you know, a whole lot of them um, in a very short space of time. Um, and I knew that something was wrong. That must be terrifying from, you know, previously being healthy and never experiencing your body yeah. not communica communicating to your brain in that way. What were you thinking or what did you initially think was going on when you experienced that in your university hall? Honestly, I had, um, I had no clue, but um, I had had a few sort of like weird sensory things six months leading up to it. And I'd seen a doctor and they kind of put it down to nerve damage. So I didn't think it was anything too serious at the time. But when you're getting like a whole lot of these sensory type things, and I didn't know at the time that they were seizures, um, you start to freak out because you don't think it's going away. And every other time I'd had it for maybe a, a few seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and it would go away. But, you know, the, for the period of about three to five minutes by memory, just continuously losing feeling to your arm while trying to write an, uh, write an assignment and finish it off, um, you know that something's really wrong. Health is so important and you don't realise how precious it is until something's going wrong. Absolutely, um, yeah. And I've never experienced anything like you have, not even close. But earlier this year, you know, I broke my ankle quite bad and even looking at a set of stairs when I was in a cast, like that was a total different beast. And now, you know, looking at people who can who can walk around totally able-bodied, I was like, man, I totally miss that. I miss walking upstairs. How did that um, experience of going through a brain tumor what did that teach you, you know, about life? And I can imagine you had so many, so many different thoughts going through your head around who you were. You've lived such a short life, the relationships that you have, yeah. and also around your legacy. So if you just want to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, man. Um, when you get to that moment and you, you know, yeah, you're having seizures and um, let's give you a bit of an idea what happened. You know, I, you know, I had a, a blackout at university I was alone when I was just trying to leave the doors when I thought something was wrong and I had to you know I made a stupid decision to drive home I'm so grateful now that I even got there and you get there in the the room spinning and you just don't know what's happening and it was um and it was freaky and next minute you're in you're in hospital and the next day you find out that you know you've got a, a vascular brain tumor is pretty horrific and a hard thing to kind of understand and comprehend um when I was in, I was in hospital when I first got diagnosed. Obviously, that's when I found out I had a brain tumor. I was in hospital for only about seven days then, and I wouldn't get operated on for a year, um, which is crazy. And every day I'd have a seizure. But in that moment of those first initial days, that's when it kind of hit me um, about what was actually happening to me. Um, the fact that I hadn't had the chance to give thanks to those people around me, you know, I remembered having a fight with my mum, you know, that's, that's my memory of having my last engagement with my mum was mm. having a, a mean fight with her, you yeah. know, the day before, and that's really hard to take. 
thinking about that you'd been a failure your whole life and that you hadn't really done anything. I mean, that sucks. And I didn't want to go down that way. So, you know, initially it was awful. I had these terrible thoughts about myself. Um, almost thought I kind of deserved it, um, which was really weird. But then after a few days, you still just start coming to the reality of what you're going through. And I start to realize it's out of my control. And I think in that moment, I started to think about um, what does giving thanks look like? I didn't want my last engagement to be a fight with my mum. What does legacy look like? I didn't want to be a failure. I wanted to have done something that's great in this world. I wanted to have something that's that's substantial or or meant something. I hadn't had those opportunities and I thought it was the end. Um, So a bit of perspective on that moment. I get to look forward from it now and I, I realize, wow, that taught me so much and and I feel like I'm almost a better person oh, for it. Yeah, absolutely. And look, hindsight is an absolutely beautiful thing and it can help shape really us. Is, yeah. And between that time where you got diagnosed with a vascular brain tumour, um, I guess your world really got put upside down when you got told that news by the doctor. And then you have a whole 12 months before you can you know, operate it on to try and remove it. Um, what went on during that 12-month period? I know you really sort of kind of stepped up your game in regards to having a lot more fire under your belly to, um, you know, do something with a, with a real difference and some purpose behind you. What did that 12 months look like, bro? What I think was most intriguing was, you know, four days after finding out you have a vascular brain tumour, um, going through a process of coming to the reality of your situation that it's out of your control and trying to get to a point where you can do something about it. Um, that's what triggered me, like I say, giving thanks and leaving a legacy. That hit me and I really wanted to do something about it. So um, from my hospital, I literally decided to call Whitcalls after four days of being in hospital. As you do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was because when I was a kid, my mother would always read to me. And that had been one of the most happiest experiences I'd had as a child. I can, I can remember that too, actually. You <laughs> know, so I've got great. certain stories where my parents were reading to me as a oh. youngster that I still remember the feeling I got from the books to this day. Absolutely. And trust me, we weren't even reading the cool books. My sister was, your mum would always read to my sister and I, and it was always Pony Pals. And Pony Pals. oh my gosh, I, I honestly, I think I've probably had every Pony Pals book read to me because I think that's what we did every single night that's one of my fond childhood memories um but that moment was exciting you know I got to spend time with my mum my sister it was a really good family bonding time um it was a quiet place and I just loved hearing my mum read to me and in that moment I I thought like wow I mean that was so profound in my life I want to make a bit of a difference what does it look like and the first thing that I could think of was I really want to help kids. There's just so many kids out there in such a hard situation. I'd always had a, you know, I always cared about kids. I'd always wanted to make a difference in, in for, for children. I don't think that was anything new to me in this moment, but that pulled me into action. So I literally called Whitcalls and I said, hey, um, this is what I want to do. Here's, here's why I want to do it. And this is the difference I think it could make. I think in that moment you say it with such conviction and such heart. The person on the other end of the phone must have been like, wow, um, I really want to help this guy. Um, Yeah, so I started to pull together this small little initiative called the Knowledge Bank, which was about um, providing books to children. And I think, you know, it was quite small. In total, we probably got about 800, 900 books from authors and Whitcalls and 
you know, a few donated and things and managed to get the council to have a storage unit to, you know, to store all the books in. And then um, got to go through this beautiful experience about delivering those out to um, school children in Desau 1 schools. And um, I remember um, when I did that, I went to the school and every kid went home with like five new books. And that was just so exciting. And because all the books were the same, you had all the, all the kids there reading to each other. And that was such an enlightening and such an exciting experience that I actually got to be a part of. And to think that I'd had the ability to do something like that is, you know, it was, it was really wonderful to do that. And something so simple yet so powerful, right? You know, yeah. using guess, using yeah. books, connecting them with kids, and then who knows what sort of stories. It's what I knew at the time. Totally. It's stories <laughs> and memories that would have came out of that. Do you think that because of, you know, what you had went through in the months previous with being diagnosed with the brain tumour, that was really a result of you sort of standing up and, um, and, and really giving that stuff a go after having your life kind of, in a way, you know, with the risk of it kind of yeah. being up in the air. It definitely put things in the fast lane. Yeah. Um, I always, I think, have always been inclined to care about people around me. I, at least I think I do. Um, but I think that's with everyone, right? Not just with me. I think we all try to look out for those people around us, no matter what our situations are. Um, yeah, but it definitely put things in the fast track and it got me motivated to do things. Like I said, to that moment, I'd really felt like a failure, right? I had started things and not completed them. I was, I started a university degree. I dropped out of it. It wasn't for me. I'd started lying to my parents about it. It was just awful. Um, and I think in that moment, I'd started to kind of turn my life around, right? I got my first A. I was doing something I really enjoyed. Um, and then obviously the, you know, the, Unfortunate, the brain incident essentially just just hit me, which was really really hard. Um, but yeah, overcoming that definitely puts you know you in the fast lane around right. what the difference you want to make. And hey, if you want to do it, there's no better time than now. Totally, I love that man. I don't That's think there um, is another time. At that no, moment. yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So after you you know start up the knowledge bank, and then when you're getting up to the time where you're having have, having to go into theatre for the brain surgery. What's going through your mind? Um, you know, I think I've spoken to you earlier about the first sort of major, well, not major at all in regards to what you're talking about, but the first time I ever went into uh, theatre had to be put under was getting my tonsils out, and I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll be scared of that too. Don't worry, <laughs> we're not any different. <laughs> you are a seasoned pro in that regard, but uh, what were you thinking? I'm sure you would have been absolutely terrified. Yeah, um, time of the operation. Yes. extremely terrified um leading up to it was you know it was a really hard time for me you know um in about four months before prior to surgery um my flatmate who i was living with when i first got diagnosed um you know he had also been diagnosed with cancer and he unfortunately didn't make it um and you know at his at his funeral that's when i had a a sort of a major seizure and I was rushed back to Wellington and had to meet with a neurosurgeon and it's only then that I actually found it out that I needed to have the surgery until this point I just had a tumor in my brain that was growing yeah it and then it to be monitored and needs to be monitored yeah. there was a hope that it could heal up but this was the point where they were like um you're you know we we, we have to operate you have essentially no choice it's, it's the only option now and that hit me and that's the moment probably the first moment that I probably cried um in front of anyone and that was my dad I'd always tried to put on such a strong look for almost a year now um 
and that was difficult mm. Mm. and they you know in that moment they said they need to operate they decide to operate in, in january four months later what was really interesting between that period i actually didn't have um many seizures at all in fact the two months before my operation i had no seizures so i just started to kind of be like oh yeah maybe i'm okay um then i got the call in january you know 7th of 5th of january saying hey um we want to operate you on you next sunday and that's when it all just hit me like what the heck this is actually happening it's real um and when i went to hospital i had a um you know, I had a stealth MRI the morning of. I got to say, that sounds pretty cool. A stealth <laughs> MRI. It's like how, cool they, how they kind of navigate, you know, through the through their brain. So when they're gone to do an operation, they want to make sure they get it perfect. Right. What was really interesting is straight after that, everyone started rushing. And it was like this mad rush. There was, I remember seeing about 13 or 14 people in blue coats after that that were the ones to obviously do the operation on me and saw the anaesthetist. I found out later after my operation that, you know, even though I'd had no sort of seizures in the two months leading up to it, um, the vascular sort of brain bleed, the vascular tumour inside my head had almost doubled in size. So an operation that was meant to be four hours was actually taking nine hours. And um, talking to my parents about it post now, they just tell me how terrifying that moment was because oh, they just had no idea. And um, even I had no idea. Um, yeah. yeah. But it was... It was scary. Yeah, no. It was scary. Undoubtedly. I, I can't deny it. What happened, obviously, a complex, complicated, tricky surgery. What was recovery like for you, bro? Difficult. I had to essentially, you know, learn how to take a few steps again. It was, it was awful. It took me a few weeks to... Wow. You know, I remember I got out of the hospital bed and I took that first step and I stumbled over. And then you take three more steps and you stumble over and, you know, eventually there's a bit of excitement because you can walk to the other side of the hospital room, which was, you know, a great. It was a great feeling when I could do that and I could touch that other wall. And it's the same with speech. It took me a while to get my speech back to the way it was. Um, you know, I had a bit of a droop for a while and... Now I have medications and things constantly to control that. It was it was a hard sort of three to six months, mm. um, but a lot of determination to get through it. And um, yeah, I, I did so, mm. which I'm grateful for now, yeah, obviously. Hey, <laughs> cheers to good health, my friend. Cheers, mate. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from your speech at Vessel for the Future. And I think for everybody listening and watching out there, a pretty much sums up your mentality and your perspective on life quite soundly. Um, and afterwards, I'd, I'd love you just to unpack that a bit more. Um, you know, what were you meaning by, by this okay. quote yeah, and, sure. and, and what does it mean to you? Yeah. Every path each and every one of us will take will be different. Every perspective that we have in the world will be unique. And ultimately, what it comes down to is a matter of attitude and how you present yourself both in the m moments of fear and opportunity beautiful bro oh, cheers man what do you mean by that speech but really you know around how you can build character and resilience in moments of fear and opportunity we can get into these hard situations and sometimes they're out of our control sometimes we just do 
bad things by choice. Sometimes we do great things, but also I feel like we can also make some bad decisions. And I think that's expected in some respects. We can't do everything right all, human, all the eh? time. We are all human beings. What I think is most important is that when we do something that's not right, it's about getting to a moment where we get a bit of perspective and realizing that wasn't right. What can I do about it? It's more about the what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do next? What's happened to you does not define you. Um, what you do about it does. If it's something bad, well, you've now recognized that it's bad and you have the power to change it. You have the power to do something different. So grab that opportunity with two hands and you can really change things up. Mm. Um, you know, when I was in hospital, I obviously had that realization in a sense when, um, you know, I found out I had a brain bleed and initially it was, I was, I was scared, I was terrified and um, I couldn't do anything about it. But once I'd come to a realization about the situation, I realized I can let this thing own me or I can own it. And I can at least try to do the things that I've just learned about giving thanks and making a difference, leaving a legacy. I can do those and I have this moment to do it. So why not take that chance? So obviously, all of that has shaped your perspective on life and who you are today. And probably safe to say it's definitely changed you as a person um, in the best regard as well. How has that journey put you back on track in regards to being attached to stuff and work and mahi that is you know, closely asso associated and, and means something in your heart that is pur purposeful and making a difference? How did, how did that all get you to you know, what you're doing now? Absolutely. Before I answer that, I think I just want to point out, you know, I'm no different than anyone else, right? We all have ups and downs. We all go through challenges in our life. Um, and I'm, I'm just no different. I want to put that out there. Um, I don't feel special because I had, um, you know, a, a major health incident. Um, I'm grateful now when I look back in hindsight. I guess what I'm getting at is that everyone goes through things um, all the time. Um, I don't consider myself any different to that. I just consider myself human in that respect. Um, those hard moments in life, whether that be, you know, the brain tumor or, you know, having my parents separate, those moments really mold me because they're experiences that I've had. And so I'm a product of my experiences. Um, so I guess naturally going through those really tough times has given me a natural inclination um, to try to do more good in the world because I've learned what, you know, what the difference is between good and bad, essentially. And I guess being able to achieve something like the Knowledge Bank when I did, that was definitely a stepping stone to being able to do some more great mahi. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's kind of just been a bit of a springboard, right? It's fast-tracked everything since then. How did that, you know, bring you into the work that you're doing today. I know you had a pretty successful stint um, in recruitment for <laughs> yes, a while. Um, yep. But you ended up stopping that mahi because, you know, it was it was great to getting dollars in the bank, but didn't really set your soul on fire. Do, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. So what it was for me essentially was, you know, I started to, after I, you know, recovered, um, 
I started applying for different jobs and I managed to get accepted into some recruitment companies. I got turned down from a few. It didn't stop me. I love um, the story of how you got your job at the recruitment company. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's awesome. Like, you know, it's the really confidence that you had. I yeah, remember you I telling me that <laughs> years ago. How, how did you do it? Do you want to come, oh, cover I, that I, real oh, briefly? Happy to. So I moved over to Australia after my um, surgery, mainly just to get away from everyone. Yeah. And I got a job that I thought was paying $60,000, which back then I thought that was all right. Didn't know that my rent was going to be $350 in North Sydney and that I'd pick up an, uh, an Aussie twang. Not that there's anything wrong with Aussie twangs. I'm back to being the Kiwi I am now. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I realized that I just fundamentally could not like afford the living expenses that I was in. And I knew I had to get out of there. So I rang a, um, a recruitment company in Australia, I don't know if I should name them or not. Um, they can be anonymous. <laughs> they can be anonymous. We'll start with that. And um, I rang them up and I said, hey, I've seen your role on online. You're looking for a junior business development uh, manager. Um, I thought that's a really exciting role. I sort of told them about myself. And they said, oh, that's really cool. Well, why don't you come and drop in your CV? And, um, you know, and we can go from there, essentially. Great. So the next day I took the day off work. Um, <laughs> I um, spent almost all night making my CV, um, wagged work the next day, went over to North Sydney and I got to the office and it was this like massive, beautiful, tall building. High roller. High roller, recruit, everyone's recruiters. in suits. Yeah. yeah, like you honestly feel like the pictures on the world are gold-plated, like yeah. it is nuts. And um, I remember going up the staircase and I went up to the, to the top, it's like one of the top floors. And I remember speaking to the receptionist. I was like, hey, um, my name's Thomas. I'm, I'm here to see Susan. And she goes to me, oh, have you got an appointment? And um, I, I kind of second guess myself and I'm like, yeah, I've got an appointment. See Susan. Um, and I have my CV. But I but you had no appointment booked. Did well, you? I didn't have an appointment booked, but she told me to come and drop off the CV. Right. So, um, yeah, I, maybe I kind of, you know, destroyed the truth a little bit there. Um, hey, we learned from that. That's OK. I wouldn't do it now. Um, but, um, yeah. She said, oh, cool. Um, let me go see if, sh if she's available. She goes and chats with Susan. There's just glass panels. You can see everything that's going on. And she, oh, crap, I said her name. Damn, all good. Um, <laughs> and I remember she had a chat with Susan. And then I could see Susan's hand like waving, saying, like, not now type yeah, thing. Yeah. And then um, she came back. She's like, oh, Susan's a little bit busy at the moment. Can I take a message? And, of course, I don't think that she would have known who I was or what this whole thing was about. I said, um, actually, I've traveled from, you know, across Sydney here and I'm, you know, I, I really needed to speak with Susan. She had actually told me to come in um, and I had to give her this. And she goes, and she looked at it and she goes, oh, is that your CV? And I said, yes. And then she goes, oh, cool. Okay, well, um, I'll give it to Susan and um, I'll get her to give you a call if she's interested. And I said, look, I really appreciate that. But, um, you know, I've traveled across Sydney and if I'm the right person for this role, then um, essentially I was like, well, you know, how am I going to add value? You know, what is it going to look like? Um, what was the exact words I, I used? I can't remember exactly. I love that. Just the confidence to go <laughs> I had in so there much and be confidence like, hey, in me. Yeah. I don't care if she's busy. She needs to talk to me. Well, it was more like, um, you know, the longer we wait, the less value we're going to be added yes. add to your business. That was the words I used. Yeah. And she looked at me startled and then she went back inside. Who is this guy? Yeah, who is this guy? And she went and talked to Susan and Susan came and 
and scratched her head. And she came out, she goes, oh, hi. And I said, oh, hey, Susan, it's Thomas here. And I think they were just trying to get rid of me. I said, Susan, it's so great to see you. I've just had a lovely chat with your with your receptionist. See, I, I mentioned her name. I won't describe that, <laughs> disclose that now. She goes, oh, great. And I said, look, well, here's my Stephen. She goes, oh, thank you. Look, I'll, I'll give you a call if I'm interested. And then I repeated the same thing. And I said, oh, thanks, Susan. Well, look, you know what? I've come a long way to be here today. I actually have a job and I'm, I'm not there because I really want this one. And I feel like, you know, if I am the right candidate, you know, I really want to know what it takes to actually start delivering value here. She looked me in the eyes and she put me into this room and we started having a chat and then I had another interview and then I walked out of that day with a new job <laughs> and about another 40 grand. Oh, man. <laughs> so, I love it. That was awesome, mate. I love it. I, yeah, I've yeah. always loved that story of you and I think it oh, sums geez, up, mate. you know, like your... <laughs> yeah. The natural confidence and that knack for communication. You learn a lot along the way, though. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. Um, a bit different and now. You, so you were at that recruitment agency for a couple of years, one year yeah, or so. Yeah, ish, ish, year and a bit ish, year yeah, and, a bit. and I worked in another one in, in New Zealand yep. um, before, of course, we teed up. Yeah. Yep. Um, and tell me about the decision around the move from working at, like, you know, a very commercial enterprise, recruitment, um, probably good for your bank account, Um but then actually wanting to wanting to take a step back and doing something a bit more meaningful, what pushed you to take that step? Yeah. Um, there was a moment in recruitment that hit me quite hard. Um, I worked in a company that did sales recruitment, so especially putting salespeople into sales roles. It's where I learned how to sell as well. It was a really cutthroat environment. Um, I'd seen more people walk, you know, hired and fired in their office than anything I've probably ever experienced to date now. Um, it was it was crazy. Um People would lose their job and then the CEO would go through their computer and find out who else they could get rid of that wasn't performing. And it was just ugly. I could not believe it. It's you know, something I didn't even know happened. Um, this one time I had a candidate who was, um, he, he was a drummer and he was perfect for this musical instrument distribution company. He was a perfect fit and it was only half an hour away from his door. But there was one problem. The company was only paying a 10% fee. And this candidate was highly placeable. Like we could put him into so many different companies. Um, it wasn't funny. There's was just so many places he could fit into. So I was advised, I think that's a nice way to put it, to pitch him to the company that was paying the 20% fee first. I wasn't happy with that. This person wouldn't be traveling half an hour to work. He'd be traveling over an hour an hour away from his kids doing a job that he doesn't even like mm. in the food and beverage sector. He loved music. Mm. He loved instruments. I knew what he wanted to. I knew he would be a perfect fit for that job. But I was told I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to do that until I pitched him to the companies paying a higher percentage fee first. Because I knew he would get placed pretty easy and you get that, get that bonus. Yeah, We'd get the bonus. And to give you an idea, that's like, you know, I get 10% of that fee. So if it's 10000 to $20,000, for a young guy like me, it's an extra, what? Grand. Grand, grand. Yep. yeah. For not doing a lot of extra work. Mm. I did that. And it stuck with me and it haunted me because I felt like I had done something that was just morally wrong and I shouldn't have done that. And then I realized that this was happening in recruitment everywhere and it, it really hit me hard. And I made a decision that that's not the type of environment that I want to be in. And that's not the type of business that I want to be involved in. Mm, mm. That's really strong, man. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't have or maybe aren't aware is a better way to put it of mm. this sort of moral compass. And when things, especially in organizations nowadays, you really want to work for an organization, a business, whatever that does align to your values. Mm. Have you always 
have you always known from the get-go, you know, or been conscious of where your values are and where you want to reflect that into work? Being honest, I think that's probably a bit more of a natural process because I think I can really resonate when I see the hurt in people, right? So having a conversation with somebody knowing that that's not the right job for him and then doing it anyway i just felt like that's that's just not me at all totally i'm um, seeing people in a workplace who are just trying their best and then just getting trodden on and then essentially told to leave which is in a sense it was like almost firing at the time it was awful and then seeing somebody else go through their computer i just all of that stuff kind of hit me right like that's just awful stuff and so you start getting a real sense about what's really important to you and like i say a product of experiences i didn't know what i knew going into that role but i came out better for it and I think that's the same with kind of every little sort of stepping building block you go on. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%, man. Um, and obviously, thank God that you did make that jump from recruitment to Inspiring Stories, oh, geez, the charity we both <laughs> used to work for. We got, we got connected up there for yeah, sure. Yeah, and that's how we, um, how we first made that, made that connection. I think I started as a, you know, snotty-nosed little intern. Oh, mate, um, you're... You're amazing. Nah, like dude. But, about yourself. And then, <laughs> you know, just learning under you around sales and the process oh, geez, around mate. it. So really keen to speak about your your mahi at the moment, you know, your sales engine, which you've created. Um, you've always had a really natural, I think, gift around sort of sales. Obviously worked very Thank hard you. at it, but, um, you know, I always say you could sell ice to the Eskimos. <laughs> Do you mind telling us a bit about your sales engine? Yeah, I think we learn a lot from, you know, the different people we go on. Um, before I get into the, the sales engine stuff, if you don't mind, um, you know, to get a lot of those skills, it was putting yourself in the deep end, right? Um, putting yourself in front of the, the head of the recruitment company in Australia, putting yourself in the deep end. Um, whether it's right or wrong, you don't know what's going to happen, but you did it anyway. You took that chance. Um, when I started at a charitable trust, it was a massive drop in revenue. So again, for me, um, sorry, and you know, in, in terms of my salary, yeah, apologies, and. Um, you know, that's quite a hard decision to do, but you take a leap of faith and you wonder what you can do with it to do something more aligned. That became more important to me than, than the money. Um, I'd managed to buy a house by then. I was very grateful and very lucky that yeah. I did so. <laughs> Market's a bit crazy now, eh? Uh, it's a bit different. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, the opportunity at Inspiring Stories to jump into a deep end, you know, an organization that didn't have a lot of... Um, financial backing at the time didn't have probably enough resources but always willing to punch above its weight like what a cool environment to be a part of mm. and i think when you throw yourself in the deep end like that you really get the chance to grow yes um and that was the opportunity to build you know sponsorships with organizations like messi and microsoft and um, travel around the country with you of course noah um meeting a whole lot of different mayors across new zealand and putting together a program called you know future leaders like how fitting for for what the things that i care about and I'm getting to see these young people and what they're currently going through, but being a part of the, I guess, trying to make life a little bit better for them. And that really hit my why hard. Mm. Um, so I think for me, it was about realizing, you know, when you have that sales and partnership management talent um, and you can apply it to something good, you can create some amazing outcomes. Yes. Um, and I feel like a lot of people in those situations uh, are more so drawn towards more corporate environments as well. That's not a bad thing because you can make change in corporates too. It's Absolutely. definitely not a bad thing at all. Um, but I guess in that instance, I felt like that was my calling to do that at the moment and I learned a lot from it. Mm. Um, so, you know, since then I've done a whole bunch of different contracts, whether it be putting you know, hundreds of grads into jobs here in New Zealand in the tech sector, um, whether it be 
selling out, you know, global travel events in Hawaii and Fiji, which was another not great bad. experience. Not bad. Not bad. Um, and you learn a lot along, along the way. So um, that all led me to building out my own um, agency called Your Sales Engine. And I think what I love most about it is being able to apply um, a moral compass to a sales process, nice. right? Making sure that people aren't bought into things that actually aren't right for them. That businesses or salespeople know how to ask the right questions of their customers in order to realize, is this actually a good fit without actually pushing somebody into something they may not actually need. So I like to apply a lot of that type of knowledge to the work that I do. Um, and I have a lot of great clients for it um, who are long lasting clients too. Mm. So I'm grateful for that. When I think of sales, usually I think of a sleazy real estate agent or, you know, like <laughs> some sleazy recruiter or something. But of course, you've yeah. got this really natural way of going around sales strategy in a really organic and human way um, where it doesn't it doesn't seem like a sell. And it's actually not about the sell. I think that, that that's why you've been so successful in that. Thank what you. has been... To, to the people listening, what has been, you know, your sales process or what is it for your sales engine? Yeah, it's, um, it definitely changes based on the clients you're working with and what their needs are. So, you know, nothing can be a cookie cutter approach, no. but um, um, there are some things that I think uh, are sort of evident in almost all the sales work that I do. And on a basic, on a basic level, um, it's really about understanding the people um, that you want to help and taking the time to do that. So, and I've got a really basic strategy around that. It's a three-part strategy called state story strategy. Um, state referring to literally the mental state of the people you're talking to. Are you talking to people in the right state of mind? Um, are they actually in a position to have conversations with you? Um, learning not to push things. I think that's really important. Um, the importance of actually trying to um, add value to the people instantly that you're actually talking to in terms of if they're having a bad day, how can you be an uplifting moment in that day? Yeah. That type of stuff. And I think that's really rewarding for almost everyone I work with. Um, and then how to transition into understanding somebody's story um, as a customer, you know, uh, or, or, you know, it's, you know, how long have they been in business for? What's their challenges? What are they struggling with? How can you actually help with that? And I feel like unless you actually go deep into understanding what somebody's problems are, what they're trying to achieve. If you don't do that, you really can't help them. And I've been in a lot of different sort of sales conversations with potential customers and, and clients as well. Um, and when they don't get that, I start a realization that maybe they're not the right clients for me. Mm. I want to make sure that all of my clients, all the people I work with, have an ethical compass to understand somebody's situation, um, to make sure that people don't make silly financial decisions when they're actually purchasing a product or service as well. I think that's so important. What is your advice to, you know, somebody who's launching a startup shortly, um, thinking about getting into business, what is your advice to them around, you know, adopting those sort of policies or strategies when engaging clients? Big question. Yeah, it is a huge question. Um, I, again, it probably means different things to different people. Um, first thing I want to say is, hey, look, you don't know everything and that's okay. Just give it a go and have the confidence to give it a crack in the first place, right? Um I think that's the most important thing. When it comes to the sales process, um, like I say, just slow down. If you're trying to start something, just slow down a little bit. Take the time that it takes to know people. You don't need to get into a conversation. Not everyone's going to be your friend. Not everyone's going to become your customer, and that's okay. But take the time to understand those people. Don't burn your bridges. You don't need to. Take the time to understand to p understand people, get to know them as human beings, 
Um, and then I think you'll find that, you know, business people can also become friends too very quickly. On top of your sales engine, you've also got um, a bit of a sort of social initiative which has been starting up uh, called Om In. Do you want to touch on that quite briefly and what made you, I guess, come up with the premise and the idea um, about what Om In is all, all about really? Yeah, happy to. So on my travels around the country and meeting with lots of young people in various different roles, um, especially in our more rural communities, right, That's there's some things that have kind of stuck with me. And I found them as problems that I really wanted to solve. Um, I remember being in a small community in New Zealand called Apodiki. And, um, Shout out Apodiki. I <laughs> love Woo. Apodiki. You know, a, a place where there's, I think there's about seven or 8,000 people there. Um, I think there's a council for every 1,000 people, something ridiculous like that. But I met a lot of the young people there, and they didn't have a lot of hope. And I wanted to really unpack what that looked like. And when I realized the barriers that stopped from stopped them from feeling like they could be successful in this world i really wanted to address those things um the most obvious one was the fact that they told me they didn't have a lot of money and i was like i get that if their parents have been on the benefit for years and years i'm not just actually the benefit but hadn't been doing things that were productive or inspiring for these for these young rangatahi in our in our world um how can they find good role models that was another thing i wanted to unpack a little bit and when they talked to me and they said, we don't actually have a lot of things to do in our community. We don't have a lot of opportunities. I wanted to kind of understand what we could do about that. Um, and I remember I spoke to a, a local business in, in their community and um, I told them about these problems. I was like, yeah, I've just met these really cool young people. And I met this one person in particular and he's telling me how he's, how he's broke and you know, how his parents aren't that great and how there's really no opportunities for him here. And he doesn't know what to do with his future. And um, they literally said to me, oh, wow, we'd be an amazing educator for that young person. I'm sure we could do something. And then it kind of hit me, you know, how do we create a movement of um, people who are um, caring and kind to open up the doors of their business to give young people a chance to learn? And what does it take? Because Apodiki may not have a lot of things to do for young people as it stands, but there's a whole bunch of businesses in that community that will actually thrive when these young people actually decide to stay there. So they need to give them hope. They need to help them dream that they can actually achieve things in their own backyard. And that's what Iman's all about. It's about connecting um, the backbone of our economy with a role in literally helping our most vulnerable young people. And what does that take? Mm. And that's a question that's constantly on my eye, my mind. And that's something I'm hoping to achieve with Iman. Yeah, man. That's such, a, that's such an awesome premise. And I think it goes around the saying of it takes a village to to raise a child you know and if we could get all the key players if it's council business high schools kind of a bit more lined up and actually working together um because they do tend to work in silos you know yeah imagine the results that we could see totally um, I, I think i've always said you know education is not a personal responsibility it's not a community's response uh, sorry it's, it's not a individual's responsibility it's not a family's responsibility but it's a community's responsibility mm. so it's up to us to raise our kids you mm. know and i mean as a village as a team what does that take mm. um if a child has a role model that may be failing them it doesn't mean it's the end for them right the community can step up and we need to actually create that into the into the fabrics of society couldn't agree more so what's next for Amin and your sales engine what's on the horizon Absolutely. So, um, you know, we've got some amazing clients at the moment. I've actually just gotten back a week ago from traveling around the whole of the South Island of New Zealand, um, working with different Ministry of Social Development um, sites across the country, across South Island, sorry, and I'm helping their staff create new initiatives to help um, 
young people or, or people in general find their pathway into education, employment and training. And that's been a real blessing to do that type of work. I'm hoping to do more of that, of course, in the future. Um, but of course, you know, corporate clients as well, continue to do a lot more work with them in terms of um, changing the way that they um, engage their staff into a particular sales process that they may have developed that may, may not be, you know, that ethically or, or, or morally correct in terms of looking after people. So being able to work on that stuff with clients, I think that's one of the goals. Um, and for I'm in, um, at a stage where we're doing, I like to think we're doing something quite big, um, something that hasn't been done before. Um, in terms of what does it really take to connect those young people, um, we're talking 16 to 24-year-olds, what's it to take to really connect those people to you know, opportunities in their region and how do we go about doing that? So we've got some pretty exciting things coming up, um, which I'm sure I'll share with you on another podcast later on. Yeah, man. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll definitely do one in, you know, six months, 12 months from now and see where things we'll are we'll at. We'll hit it, man. That's Sounds awesome. Good. Hey, before we wrap things up, just some sort of quick fire questions. Um, don't have to think about them too much. Uh, Tommy, what is the meaning of life? Meaning of life um, is to um, be able to um, give what you receive. Love it. What does legacy mean to you? Um, the ability to leave the world in a better place than I found it. If you had the power of Jacinda Ardern, <laughs> if you were the Prime Minister for a day, what's one thing you would change in New Zealand and why? One thing I would change? Yeah. Um, Doesn't have to be boring policy. I don't want to it start. Just I be like, you know, trouble. <laughs> magic wand, magic wand. Look, to be honest, I think I would... Um, have a think about how we actually treat people that are currently receiving benefits in our country. Nice. I think there's a lot more work that we can do with that, especially around our, our young rangatahi. Um, I want them to feel um, supported when they get a call from the government. And I don't always think they do. I feel like it's work in progress. I just feel like there's a lot more to do there. And um, I think there's some easy, quick wins that can be done in that space, such as addressing barriers as opposed to just working towards sort of on and off benefits. I think we've yeah. got to address the barriers. Yeah. Um, that includes like mental health into that process. You know, what's your barriers? How do we help you eliminate those? I think that's a major one. Um, and I know they're doing a lot of this work at the moment. So things are changing for the better. I just would love to speed it up a bit. Um, not just mental health, um, how to write CVs and cover letters. Mm. That's an easy way to help these people understand what jobs they want. Mm -hmm. Great career planning advice around what is it that you actually want to do with your life. And just not stereotyping people. That's another thing that I think is really important, right? Just because, um, and I actually heard this from somebody I've been working with at the moment, you know, just because you're a certain ethnicity does not mean you're doing a certain job. And that's got to change. It's got to change fast. Mm, mm. That's beautiful, bro. And I think... Our Māori make incredible tech entrepreneurs. I just oh, want to state that. Absolutely, man. Um, and the Māori economy is just growing and growing and growing. So what we can job. do to uplift that, man, absolutely the better. Um, last question there. What do you believe is the main thing that is holding back young people in New Zealand? The main thing that's holding back young people, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of them. I mean, they'd probably say money. I wouldn't say it's that. I would say it's the ability and it's the access to good role models. I think that's what's stopping them. Um, if I like to think you're a product of your experiences. If all you're experiencing is some pretty hard situations and you don't have good people to hold you in a good way or character moving forward, it's very tough to think anything different. Yeah. So we really need to get more good role models around our, around our young people so that we can really support them out of a crisis. 
before we leave on a bit of a quote, is there anything else you would like to, you know, leave this podcast on? Where can people hear more of you? Where can they stay in touch with your work? Oh, thanks, mate. Um, of course, online all the time on LinkedIn. Um, my name works really well, actually, funny <laughs> enough. <laughs> so please feel free to hit me up there. The um, but of course, you know, we've got our socials as well for your sales engine and I'm in. So you're welcome to check those out. But of course, just flick me a message. I'm, I'm always here to chat. Um, I, I love chatting to people and getting to know what they're up to and, and seeing where I could add value or, or what difference we could actually make together. And even at times just to give advice too. I love doing that. Whatever I can do to help support you and your mahi, I'm all for it. Love that, brother. Hey, Tommy, I've learned a lot in this podcast. Another massive thank you for being the first guest. Cheers, man. I appreciate it. You know, that wire. Your, um, <laughs> sort that out. <laughs> your enthusiasm, your perspective on life is something we should all, I think, strive to, strive towards. I've, I've, I've heard your story in many different forums a few times, but every time I hear it, I get something new out of it. Oh, thank um, you, mate. And just so grateful for, you know, you as a friend, as a mentor, and, um, Oh, I can't wait to see, you know, where you'll go. Um, I will end us on a on a bit of a quote, and this is by uh, my friend Jake Bailey. I do believe this actually won a big quote award. I think I've I totally the one. butchered the the, uh, <laughs> the name of the award, but I think he'll forgive me. Um, Jake Bailey, you know, he's a, a cancer survivor, and you might remember him as the as the head boy of Christchurch Boys High School, who did that viral speech. Um, at his end of year sort of prize giving um, that sort of shook the world. Okay, here we go. But none of us get out of life alive, so be gullant. Be great, be gracious, be grateful for the opportunities that you have. I think it's quite fitting for that the episode we had today. So beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Noah. Appreciate it, brother. Anytime. Cool. That's us. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>